Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, as part of my second book called Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture, we talk about just things to improve our culture. And one of the chapters in there, um, chapter six, is um, creating better understanding of mental illness and suicide. And it's one of its purposes reduce the shame and stigma around those two topics. And my guest on today's podcast um, is willing to talk about his journey, particularly with self-harm and cutting himself as part of serving a mission. And it's really brave of him to talk about. He's the first person in 500 plus episodes that step forward and want to talk about this subject. And I don't know a lot about it, but there's been a few people in my circle that have cut themselves. I don't even know the right language. Clark will probably help us. And I had no tools to help them or to really understand the totality of what was going on. So let me introduce you to Clark. Clark Barrow is 24 years old. He's a student at UVU. He's recently married. He's been married for 11 months to his wife, Tegan. Um, he's working towards a degree in social work and would like to be a therapist in this general field after getting his master's to help others. Um, Clark has been on the episode before. He was on episode 398 where Alec Barrow's kids came and talked about their love for their gay dad. Um, so you can listen to Clark on 398. It's a beautiful family love story. Um, Clark's dad did a solo podcast with Clark's dad and his mom on 397, sharing his story as a gay Latter-day Saint. But I was just touched by both those episodes and just the family love that's present in this family and support of their dad and everybody as they're all walking unique roads. Clark is joined here by his bride, Tegan. They've been married 11 months, and she may share a little bit or may not. Often a guest will come and bring their a partner or a friend, or in this case, a spouse. And, and I like that, just moral support. Um, is that okay for an introduction, Clark? That is great. And I'm just looking through my notes, listeners. Um, so anyway, Clark did serve in the... Tell us what mission you served in and what years. I served in the New York Utica Mission from 2016 to 2018. And just the big picture is you served a mission, you came home early release, you went back and you came home again. Yes, I went home after about eight months for um, a knee surgery. And then ultimately when I came home early, it was due to the medical health emergency that was my self-harm. Self-harm. Um, just give us some vocabulary before you get in your story. When I say cutting, is that a subterm of self-harm or is self-harm a better term to use for people that are cutting? So personally for me, um, cutting has, at least in my personal vocabulary, has always kind of had a negative, negative stigma towards it. So I've kind of taught myself and the people around me to go with self-harm instead. Um, I cutting is um, a type of self-harm but when I I mean I'm not offended when someone says cutting I just I've personally taught myself and the people around me with self-harm rather than cutting thank you for that and um, I've always liked asking questions of people walking the space to help me understand the vocabulary and we'll learn a lot together I asked Clark um before we went live and he's we we're just kind of talking this podcast and he says if you told me three years ago 
um, that I would talk about this to 25,000 people, you would have thought I was crazy. And this is the courage of people that bravely step forward to share their stories. Um, Clark has used a couple words before we went live with me, stigma and shame. And I think that's our joint prayer is that those of you that are walking this road with self-harm, um, because of Clark's story, will and those of you that are helping others will reduce the stigma and the shame around this so that you can improve and put this behind you. So with that, I'll just kind of get you telling your story, Clark. All right. So kind of my path with self-harm, it, it started um, that break in between my mission when I was home for, home for the medical release for my surgery. and. Uh, I just kind of felt myself being pulled in several different directions. My friends wanted me to stay home. My mission president, stake president, and family were all encouraging me to go back out. And I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, everyone I loved was telling me to do something different. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And even just being home. I, I almost felt like a failure for having to come home for, for a surgery that the injury happened during a P-Day activity. So I was like, if I had been more careful, I wouldn't be home. I'd be out serving my mission, which I loved my time in the field and I loved the mission. And that, that was the hardest part for me was because I felt like because of a decision that I made, I was missing out on this experience that my friends in the mission field, I was still getting emails from companions about their weekly emails. So like I've, I felt like I was missing out and it was this, this um, sorrow and this stress of not knowing what to do. Um, and that kind of led to my first time self-harming to my first time cutting i just it was a numbing experience for me at, that um the, the physical pain put my emotional pain at rest as i've joked about it since that it's it's hard to feel sad when you're in physical pain like it is there are typically several like there's typically a few reasons why one self-harms and numbing is one of the common ones and for me it was always because of that numbing and after i at that point i i just was terrified that if i told my family if i told anybody that it would get back to um it would get back to my mission president or get, and I wouldn't be able to go back and continue serving my mission. And, um, I, so I did go back out on my own, um, by my own choice. I decided that that's where I wanted to be. And so I did go back out and throughout my, um, months, my, in my injury, my knee injury continued to have an impact on my, um, on my ability to serve. And 
anytime, like there was many times throughout my mission that the kind of the pain, the pain and me feeling like a failure of that, again, that this decision I made on a P day was impacting my ability to serve a mission. And I was failing at being a successful missionary because of that. Um, it would lead me to cutting multiple times on my mission. Um, and eventually the gaps in between the self-harm got smaller and smaller and it was becoming more and more of a reoccurring instance. And um, after I'd been back out, I want to say for about eight months, um, I was assigned a dear, dear companion that I, he was a break from some tougher companions I had had. And he, we both just had this strong desire to serve. And after being together for a few weeks, he noticed I was becoming distant. He, cause I had kind of felt like I wanted to share with him. Like I was, I felt the need that I needed to tell somebody because at this point I don't think I had told anybody about my self-harm and I felt I needed to let somebody in. And, um, I, um, I shared with him about this self-harming and he didn't know what to do. He was like, elder Barrow, I feel like this is something we should talk to president about. And I looked at him and I said, I, I, I know you're right, but I'm terrified that it's going to get me sent home. And he said to me, he's like, if, if it does, that's where you need to be. Like, if that's where you need to be, the Lord knows that's where you need, where you need to be. So the next, uh, the upcoming zone conference we had, um, we had our interviews with our mission president that week. Uh, at zone conference and he my my companion and i decided that i would go first for our interviews and um if i couldn't come up with the courage myself to tell our mission president that my uh, my companion would then tell our mission president for me and that is what happened i i couldn't do it myself i was at that point i mean the only person who i had told was this mission this companion that i grew very close to and at this point this this president had only been my president for a month and a half i think so i wasn't ready to share i was the stigma and the shame was still very very strong but thanks to my companion's courage to um talk to my president for me. I then, my president called me in again and we had a conversation and he, he basically explained that he didn't know how to deal with this. I was, it had only been a month, month and a half since he had been a mission president and that he would have to contact church headquarters and see what he was supposed to do. And um, about a week later, I got a call from him saying that um self-harm is considered a um medical um mental health emergency and that i 
I needed to get home as soon as possible to get the help that I needed. And while part of me was shattered, like I just, I wanted to serve my 24 months. I want, I loved missionary work and wanted to be there. Um, it felt like I needed to go home and the timing was very important to me. I it was two weeks before my brother got married and or two weeks before my cousin got married and three weeks before my brother got married. And bec- I think because I was able to make those weddings that um, it distracted me from tearing myself apart because of coming home for a long time after I came home. It was because of this conscious decision you made to harm yourself that you are home instead of serving the Lord. And I think that the timing of being able to be at the weddings of my cousin, who's one of my best friends and my brother, who I'm also very close to that because I was able to be there, it kind of gave myself a break from this self-loathing and this pain that I caused myself emotional and physical um that is let me jump in here clark on behalf of our listeners thanks for just what you just shared that took a lot of courage and um you know our hearts just go out to you because there's no intent obviously to come home or you i think our listeners and i can just feel your love of the church your desire to serve you're wanting to do what's right so this isn't like you woke up one morning and thought, these are the 10 things I can do to get sent home. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about your mind with that P-Day accident. I think some, I don't know if your mind went this way, but some would, sometimes our culture says, well, you wouldn't get hurt on your mission if you were completely obedient or you were following all the rules. Was there any of that going in your mind that this is my fault because just the way your mind works, that this was more than just an innocent accident. I'm actually responsible for this or God doesn't love me or I slept in three days that month. And so this is how God punished me. Just share with our listeners a little bit more of your thinking on that P-Day injury. Luckily, I never really had those kind of thoughts. Um, I did feel like, um, it was the accident. It was, I had dove while playing ultimate Frisbee. And I was like, if I had just been a little bit more careful, I wouldn't have aggravated this birth defect in my knee and I wouldn't have gone home because of it. But, um, while I, it was always my decision and not like a decision from, from earlier that, like it didn't feel like I was being punished. It felt like I made a soup, a stupid mistake and there was a consequence, but not that I was being punished in any way. Um, and I just remember I one um, a member in one of the wards asked my companion, um, he's like, has Elder Barrow tried getting a blessing? And my companion was like, yeah, many times. And then the member said, well, maybe he just doesn't have the faith to be healed. And me and my companion just laughed at that. Like it wasn't even one of those things where I took it to heart. I was, 
I had luckily I had a good enough support system then that like the Lord loves us. And sometimes there are some that can, that are healed and some that aren't. And that's just the way it is. But he does, it doesn't mean he loves me any less than those who have the miracles of healing. Love that. There's a lot of nuggets in that that are very helpful. Remind me and our listeners how long you'd been out before you came home with the injury. I had been out nine months before I came home with the injury. Talk about um, just coming home. What were the best things you heard from people in your circle, ward members, family, friends? What were the best things? And Because all of us want to do better when someone walks through the door. And what were some of the painful things, if any, you'd like to share? Um. In regards to the first time I came home or yeah. the second time? Okay, the first time. <laughs> um, it was, so the first time I, I, when we, I left on my mission, we were living in Provo. And then when I returned, we were living in Springville. So I came back to a different ward. So I didn't really have much of a support group as far as ward members go. But um, my closest friends, it was as if I had never left. We just, um, one day after my surgery, they just showed up and we just hung out and played board games, played card games for a few hours. And then they went, they left and it was as if nothing happened. And that was one of the most helpful things for me that it wasn't this big, weird thing that, I came home a little bit early that I was home for a surgery that it was just, Oh, Hey guys, Clark's back in town. Let's go hang out. That's great. Um, one of the, some of the more harmful things were it was people asking, so when are you going back out? When are you going back out? Like, um, Oh, do you think you'll be healed by then? Just, I felt like it was this constant pressure that I, that I needed to know exactly when I was going back out when frankly there it was based on things out of my control. I had no control whether my knee was going to be healed in time for that first transfer mark for me to head back out on my mission or if it was going to take a second transfer. Um, but that was, and with P, another really hard thing was when people asking me like, do you even want to go back out? Cause my friends, they saw this pressure I was getting from my family, from mission president, stake president, like to go back out. And um, they're like, is that something you want to do? And it was, but then it got me questioning, is it? <laughs> and did you feel more pressure to go back out and more conversations throughout that than your initial decision to serve a mission? Absolutely. I never realized that, but absolutely. Like, um, there was much more pressure from everyone as if the decision to go back out was more important than the decision to go out in the first place. Um, one of the chapters in this book I referenced at the beginning of the podcast listeners, I don't want to be just pushing my book. But I do think the book would be helpful for people. Chapter number eight is variations in missionary service, including early release missionaries. 
And a lot of early release missionaries share their story or things to say and not to say. And and you said something that's very consistent with the book, the people in your life that just let you, sort of let you self-determine that decision. And you just got the feeling they loved you and didn't have an agenda in their relationship with you were often the most helpful and just trusted that you'd know what to do. And so I found that and just sort of, you know, just sort of got on Clark's home. Let's go do what we used to do at Clark, um, which is what you need. It's, a, you know, you need people in your love that, life that just love you. Um, talk more about, I love the word you use, numbness. So there's enough sort of emotion. I didn't, I'm learning about this, listeners. Maybe you are for the first time. But I've someone helped me understand that the emotional pain um, people that engage in self-harm, I'm not sure it's everybody's story, but it's just the emotional pain is so intense that trading that for physical pain is relief or numbness. Tell us, share with us more about that. Um, it, it is very hard to explain to, I have found, to someone who hasn't had this same experience, I, uh, that it's just... Um, I mean, right now, a metaphor is coming to my mind is the eye of the hurricane. Like there's a torrential storm going around in my mind of this emotional pain and these um, external factors or internal factors just all, um, all just taking up every bit of focus and concentration I have in my brain and that physical pain that it just, um, I believe our, I mean, our bodies are wired to when we feel physical pain, that it is the, now the main focus of the human mind is that is on the pain receptors. We don't want like the body likes to survive. It doesn't like being hurt. So as soon as something else that is going on that is causing physical pain, everything else just fades into the background. And it was always just this, a, a few moments of peace, like that everything that I was worrying about is just gone. And it, and I was just able to relax for a few moments before before everything came crashing back and it always did because now am I not experiencing the, the pain, the emotional pain I was before, but now I am experiencing the emotional pain for I was before as well as the shame of self-harming on top of that. Thank you for that. Um, very helpful for me. Therapists, and I've talked about this listeners a little bit, uh, taught me the iceberg principle is what we see on the, above the iceberg is often not what we need to, um, we sort of need to feel what's at the bottom of the iceberg. And if we just talk about what's on the top of the iceberg, we don't solve the problem long term. And that's where therapists and people like you that sort of can explain what's going on. And for those of us around you to go slow and try to figure out what's at the bottom of the iceberg to solve things long term. And um, you used a couple words that helped me understand your heart. Clark, you were shattered when you had to come home. I, I was. I, everything that I had been for the past 
18 months of my life, the, a missionary, um, a servant, a full-time missionary, a servant of the Lord was just r- ripped from me in a few days. And it, it was really hard. I just, I, I'm glad that I came home when I did because, as I mentioned earlier, because of how busy everything was, it didn't give me time to loathe, to be hard on myself. But it it was just it felt yeah like chat the shattered is the only is the best word for it. Then I just you know I sense your heart just wanting to always do what's right and just wanting to make this work so intently and then being shattered that you can't do what you love to do. I love your description of the self-harm just gave you a few moments of peace. It helps me understand how much turmoil you're in with just the anxiety, the stress you're feeling about your situation and how those few moments of peace following the self-harm just it helps me understand what a difficult spot you would be in. And my empathy and my, my understanding for you increases and my respect for you increases because I understand, I connect more of the dots as I understand more of your story. Um, tell us about, if you want to tell us this missionary's name that you were so close to and what was about him that uh, you felt safe opening up to him. His, his name was Elder Lee. Um, and a big part of it was we, I almost felt like we sh- shared a connection. Um, cause my, so, um, two or three companions before him, I served with his trainer. That was the missionary who told the ward member that no elder Barrow doesn't just have the, the, like, it's not a faith problem with elder Barrow. And, um, that, that companion's trainer was my last companion before coming home for the surgery. So like the companion, um, he, he replaced me. And then when I came back out, I served with him and then I served with his trainee. So we all had this same area in, in, um, in common Schoharie Valley. New York, which is just one of my favorite areas to like, it was just a wonderful little branch. And that we all just had this, we called it the celestial kingdom of the mission. It was just this great little town. And that, that started, I mean, that was the initial connection I had with elderly. And, um, we just, again, like we both had the same desires and it was very obvious in how we treated each other and how we treated the work that we wanted to serve the best we could. And, um, and, um, it just, it really helped me trust him. I, the practice that he and I started going into was each day finding the small miracles. We'd call it at the end of each day, we just know back on our, the smallest things that were, we considered miracles. And it was the, the, we, um, the closeness of the companionship and, um, just the friendship we created and this 
bond within the work um is i just always felt like he a genuine care for me from him that i love this um i love the elder lee in your life and you felt safe opening up to him which led you to coming to opening up to your mission present even though it was through elder lee and that's kind of cool so Listeners, you may know you need to open up to somebody. You may be suicidal. You may know you just need to talk to somebody and you know who that person is, but you're not quite sure if you can talk to that person. I'm not sure this will work in every situation, but you may have a close friend that you can open up to that then can talk to the person you really need to talk to. And I don't think it's a weakness you didn't open up to your mission prison. I think you just recognize that you didn't have that relationship. Maybe it just didn't feel right. But you had Elder Lee there knowing that he would talk to your mission president if you hadn't. I think there's a great principle of companionship and having each other's back and not walking alone that is scalable to all of us. Is just we sometimes need people in our life to have the conversation maybe we can't quite have. And then, then that allowed you and your mission president. I love both Elder Lee and your mission president saying, I don't know, versus having the instant answer. I think sometimes us men sort of want to know, have the answer to everything. And I think it takes humility to say, I just don't know. So I thought that was terrific. So I love that you're home for your brother's wedding and your cousin's wedding. Um, you're heartbroken. You're shattered. Do you come back to the Mapleton Ward? Yeah, we were still in Springville when we got. Springville. Yeah. Springville. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Um, when so, I. So yeah. just keep telling your story. Talk about if you gave a homecoming talk. Talk about if self-harm came back into your life. Tell us more of your story. So I eventually did give a homecoming talk. It was almost, I think, two months after, which at the time, it, it like looking back now, it seems inconsequential. But at the time, it hurt. I felt like because I came home so abruptly, they're like, oh, we already have the next two months of speakers booked, so we'll fit you in where we can. And I'm sure that wasn't the case. And I'm sure if, like, if I like my bishop was not intentionally trying to make me feel forgotten, and I feel no, um, no sense of bitterness towards him, um, but. So I just, uh, the reality of how I felt at the time. Um, so I did eventually give a homecoming talk. And, and let me just make sure I've got the mm -hmm. time increments here. So you've been out, you were out eight months the first time and mm -hmm. nine months the second time? It was nine and nine. So, so these are big chunks of time you're out. Mm -hmm. And so you've served nearly two years, 18 yeah. months or 16 months. Mm -hmm. And some of that time you're home, you're probably not released. But anyway... Um, so that that helps me and just maybe our listeners. These are big periods of time. Eight months is a long time. Um, did it, and it, I want you to tell us, but I'm wondering, it just made me think that is there added shame that, you know, because a missionary coming home without an early release, often they know that release date and they're queued up to give that talk right as soon as they're home. Why an early release missionary, if, if that term's okay, that's sort of, you know, and maybe we could work harder to 
at, talk to you and say, would you like to give your homecoming talk? And we can kind of work the schedule around so that there's not shame that somehow for early release missionaries, we have to wait a while to kind of work them in why a non-early release missionary, it sort of hit the ground running. Just share with our listeners any thoughts on that. I, I mean, I personally, if I was asked to give a talk and I got a call from a member of the bishopric and said, hey, we have a somebody who just came home early from their mission. Do you mind speaking a few weeks later and letting them take your spot? I, I think that every member would be understanding and just absolutely that is completely okay. I'd, I would love to give my spot up to them. And I mean, anything we can do to help people in any sort of uh, in that emotional pain because it is hard coming home early and i've i mean i've never heard anyone say oh you it must be so easy to come home early i think everybody acknowledges that it's hard to come home early but i feel like we often enough we often don't think what can we do to make it a bit easier we just acknowledge it as a hard thing and move on do you have any feeling about if someone comes home after one month, should they be given the opportunity to give a homecoming talk? 23 months, it's, or would the principal be, I guess this is a leading question, ask the, the re- early release missionary what they'd like to do? I, th- I think that's the biggest thing. Um, I, I think even with missionaries who served their full term, ask them if they want to serve, if they want to give a homecoming talk cuz i know some um i some are just feel like it's part of the experience that it's not a choice that they have to speak and um i think that if they served whether they were in the mtc for a day or if they were in their for their served their full term that I, I actually don't like using that term, served 18 months or 24 months that they should be given the choice whether to speak or not. I love that. You took that one step further than I thought about. Um, and I love one of maybe the themes of this is, is talking to you and asking you what's best for you and letting you receive personal revelation and supporting you. And and maybe you would want advice at times and insight from others, but I think that helps when it comes from a spirit of love and this is your decision. We want to support you. And some early release missionaries might prefer to give a talk a couple months later after sort of the dust settles. Some would love to maybe just give the talk the week or to their home, just like a 18 month or 24 month missionary. Um, because I think one of the goals here is to reduce stigma and shame. And um, not so. I like that. That's really helpful, Clark. So you're home. We're not done with your story yet. So I was home. I gave my, um, I gave my homecoming talk, and in my homecoming talk, I felt that I was not. I mean, I, I went into it thinking I'm going to share a bit of my story of why I came home early, and I could not find the personal strength to say over the pulpit that I had self-harmed and that's what led me to come home, which I think is fair because that's a very hard thing to do. (laughs) Um, But I shared that I had come home for anxiety and depression and there was an elderly sister in my ward. I can't remember 
her face or her name because I had been in the ward for such a short amount of time. And we ended up moving like three months after this. So I did not know the ward very well. And I do not remember her name, but she came up to me and said, I struggle with anxiety and depression so much. And very few people have the strength to say that over the pulpit. So thank you. And the entire time she was talking to me, I just felt inside. You don't, if only you understood how weak I am because it was the self-harm that led to me coming home that I didn't see coming, speaking over the pulpit as um, about this anxiety and depression as strength. I instead saw it as weakness because I wanted to share my, the story of my self-harm, but I couldn't do it. So it's really honest. Um, is the, I'm so weak because of the self-harm or because you couldn't talk about the pulpit or both? Both. It's honest. Yeah. Keep sharing your story. And so for a time um, after I had returned from my mission, I was probably a solid month and a half. I went without self-harm. But once I re-entered the workforce and um, just continued on with my life, I started finding myself feeling weak or feeling a failure again and falling back on this old habit time and time again. And um, up to the point where I was working at Quick Quack Car Wash and um, I was trying, like I was the assistant supervisor, the assistant manager position had just opened up and I was trying hard to make this assistant manager position work for me. And so I was trying everything I could to prove my worth to my boss, to my company, to the company. And, um, one day we, one Sunday we had planned to go and clean the trench at the car wash. Um, just where all this muck and water just grows thick. And I had only been with the company for a few months at that point. I had never cleaned it before but i was like okay yeah i'll I'll go in and then my boss ended up i believe she um she sprained an ankle or had some sort of injury and was in the hospital and um she reached out to the team like hey i can't be there but it would still i would really appreciate it if you guys could all go and clean the trench many hands make light work um so like everyone had a like she had set the time of 11 o'clock i showed up at 11 o'clock and nobody was there and so i started my best doing what i thought was how cleaning the trench worked and i was there for about 45 minutes and i got maybe four feet of this trench cleaned out of this 40 50 foot trench cleaned out and i just and no one else was coming. I was the only one there, but I just did not know what to do and just felt like a failure for not being able to to do this thing for my boss who um, who I'd grown really close to. And I was just like, I she needed help and I wasn't able to offer her that help. And um, I went home, got cleaned up from <laughs> the trench. It was disgusting. 
And I went back to that, to the habit of self-harm. And um, I looked down at my leg after I cut myself. And immediately I just, I, I knew inside, I just felt inside of like, I went too deep. I, this, this is bad. I've gone too deep this time. I then went into, I was living with my parents at the time. I then went into my mom's room. Um, my dad and sister were, were at church. My mom was in her room and I went to there and, um, she, she was the only person at the time who knew I was, I who knew that I was still cutting. Um, and she only knew that because, um, she would, she would do my laundry and, but because of this, I was able to, I felt just very straightforward. I'm like, I cut myself and she's like, Oh, okay. What's going on? I'm like, I cut myself and I think I went too deep. And I mean, she entered full mom mode, got me laying on the, on her bed, looking at it, looking at the wound. And, um, she was like, all right, let's wait. Um, um, Bobo and Lizzie are coming home, Bobo being my dad, and they'll be home in 10 minutes, and then we can decide what to do from there. They got home, and um, um, it was pretty unanimous decision. Like, I needed to go to the, I needed, we needed to seek help for this, like this, this cut needed stitches. Um, We decided that we wanted to go to the urgent care rather than um, the, the emergency room simply because, um, we, um, my, my dad and like, we felt I had a good mental health, um, support team. I had a good psychiatrist and a good psychologist. I will go to when, when to go to that. We didn't really want to go with the inpatient program for me personally. We, I mean, especially in like now, especially like I understand the, um, the value for inpatient pro, um, emergency services, but for me and for our experience, we felt like that was not where we wanted to go. So we went to the urgent care and the doctor at the urgent care said, I, he was very blunt with us. He said, the only reason why I'm not telling you to go to the um, emergency room is because you tell you're telling me you have this support that you have the psychiatrist, you have the psychologist. And like my mom showed him the texts, like we've already made the appointments. And he's like, that's the only reason why I'm letting you go home tonight. Like, and from there, um, I going to backtrack a little bit when my dad and my little sister came into my mom's room, um, the sheer look of horror on my little sister's face. It was at that point when I was like, I don't care what relief this causes me, this pain that I'm causing my loved ones. I'm not going to do this anymore. And, uh, and so that was like my, when I decided to, start um recovery and um 
that for the first while, like I didn't want to be alone in my bedroom. So we set up a little computer monitor in the living room and connected my Xbox to it so I could play video games while my mom watched TV. Um, And my boss, when she heard what happened, she was, I mean, she was like, Clark, take a week off, take two weeks off, take all the time you need. Just let me, let me know when you're ready to come back. And just the support and love that I felt from everyone I told, it just helped me tell like, I was like, this doesn't need to be a secret. This isn't like nobody. I, when I tell them, Oh, I was, I like when they say, Hey, why weren't you hanging out with us last week? And I say, Oh, I was at home recovering. Cause I cut myself very deeply. Like nobody was like, Oh geez. Wow. That's kind of pathetic, man. You should have been with us. Like nobody. It was like that. Everyone was supportive and loving and understanding. Um, to the point where a few months after the incident, um, my family went to Italy where my mom is from for a few weeks. And, um, I reached out to a couple of my friends and I'm like, I don't really want to be home alone for three weeks. Could you come live with me at my parents' house for a few weeks? And several of my friends, like almost as if they were taking shifts, like hanging out with me at, like, it was just so wonderful feeling this support group and this um, circle of people just all there for me. Um, and like to the point where one of my friends, um, he overheard my landlord talking. He was like, Oh yeah, the, the, the family who live here is great, but their son is a, just a party animal. And my friend is like, you don't understand what's going on. Like he was in the the urgent care three, three months ago due to self harm. And like, and my landlord was like, I had no idea. And of course at that, since then, my, I mean, um, he, like, he's been great since then, like just, but just having that, my friends stand up for me and, um, for a time just stand like when they like eventually got to the point where they were like, okay, Clark is ready to stand on his own two legs. But until that time they were there (coughs) stand like helping me standing beside me. And it was just so wonderful to have that loving and that loving supportive group. And, um, to, I mean, just even now knowing that, um, there is people around me who, if I did relapse that they, they'd help me. Um, and I, I don't know, just no longer feeling like it was a battle I had to fight myself was suddenly made it a battle I could win. Well, that was a great last statement in the middle of a whole great segment. It it was a battle. I didn't need to fight myself. 
that it was a battle I could win. I didn't quite say it as good as you did, but I'm struck with culturally and maybe for men, and maybe this is a church thing or society thing that we're, I don't know if Puritan's the right word, but we kind of just work out our own problems and keep them to ourselves. And tough men do that. Maybe tough women do that. Maybe we're more faithful if we do that and just sort of present this face to society and to our church that's that's toxic perfectionism is what some people label it as. But I think this is one of your family's greatest moments. And I think it's one of your greatest moments, even though it was a difficult time. I think it's an insight into your character, what led up to this, and then your willingness to talk to your mom and your impression that I need to talk to my mom. And um, often kids turn to their moms first. That's the way it works in our home a lot. And dads kind of get brought in and we try to do the best we can. But I love your parents. They're friends. I know your parents. So it's unique kind of do this podcast knowing your parents. We're drinking Pellegrino listeners. Um, Clark and I in honor of Italy during this podcast because I love Pellegrino um, and your Italian roots. But I think this is a, I think the test of families is, is sometimes how, you know, the most beautiful moments I think in families are when they rally together in a difficult situation like your family did. And it's, and I think it's just a beautiful love story. And I love that you were open and honest. I love that you were open with your friends. I, I love that. I think it's a great sign of strength and courage that when your mom was, your support system was gone in Italy for a few weeks, you had your bro friends and you were honest with them and they love you and they knew what was going on in your life so they could bear morning comfort. And I would guess if I'm one of your friends and your friend group that I would know Clark is somebody I can open up to about the realities of my life. Clark will just get it. And I'm sure you've had many, many conversations with people that just know Clark is safe for me. And I can talk to Clark about the realities of my life and he'll just somehow get it. And, um, and I think that's part of creating Zion and part of more bearing and comfort is, you know, our hearts are knit together to help each other. We're not meant to go through this life alone. And it's a great strength of strength, I think, to reach out to your mom, to reach out to friends, and to be honest about your situation. I'd love to, you know, you're married now. This all happened before you were married. Your wife is here. Um, I'm coming from a YSA background where sometimes the YSAs would ask me, should I talk to my future spouse about this? And whatever that was, we talk about. My general feeling was to talk to them, that it, that it may end the relationship. That's a possibility. But I think being honest and completely vulnerable allows them to be vulnerable and honest and often deepens the relationship in a deeply authentic way. So just talk about your dating Tegan. Um, and this is part of your life. When did you, or just tell our listeners, I assume this came up some point before tonight in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so I, I was, I've been kind of thinking about it during the podcast, like when I told her and honestly, I think because of the support group I had, because of how casual a conversation had become for me, I have no idea when it was that I told <laughs> Tegan. Like, honestly, I wouldn't, I kind of feel like it was something that I was like, oh, by the way, I've had a past of, of self-harm. 
I'm, I, it's been two years since I started recovery. I, and I've been going strong since then. Like I still feel urges sometimes and, but I'm still going strong and I feel like it was just, I don't want to speak for you, Tegan, but I feel like it was just kind of like a, oh, okay. <laughs> because I mean, at least for me, it had become a, just a commonplace thing for me to talk about with my friends and with my loved ones. Let's slide that microphone yeah. over to Tegan listeners. She's here and I bet she love to hear what you want to say at this point. Um, hi, I'm Tegan, Clark's wife. Um, I don't remember the specific time that he told me, but I have been in situations multiple times. I don't know if that's just my godsend gift to the world is having people feel like they can open up to me with this serious of a situation. Um, so yeah, when he told me having those experiences in the past, having people open up, it wasn't jarring. Obviously, it was something serious to think about as a person that you're looking to marry. Um, but I understood where he was coming from and um, couldn't um, feel the same pain that he had, but understand that it's not this crazy thing to want to cut yourself or self-harm. Um, I think we've all had serious instances um, in our life where we want to turn something to cope. And if that's your coping mechanism, then that's what it is. You know, mine in high school was wasn't directly related to self-harm, but I had a few coping mechanisms that aren't healthy. I think we all have unhealthy coping mechanisms. Um, but learning that he knows how to handle himself and is open to tell me when, he, when there are those times that even now when he turns to me and says, you know, I'm, I'm having a really hard time today. I have urges of cutting. You know, we can sit down and talk about that and we can walk through his feelings and just be open. And I would say to those listeners, I'm sure this is very helpful to those who have had experiences cutting, but to those who don't and are the person that is being told um, just thinking back to my first experience of a friend telling me it can be shocking, but knowing that they are your brother or sister in God's eyes and are going through something traumatic for them to go to that point that the best thing to do is just love them and comfort them, not judge them for, you know, marking themselves in this way, but 
holding them dear and letting them know that you're with them. You're, they're not alone. So I hope, hope that helps people understand. It's great, Tegan. Um, I'm thinking of your future kids. If you choose to have kids and are able to have kids with the skills you both have right now in your marriage and the, the kind of conversations you'll be able to have with your kids because of who you are right now. And I think those will be paydays. They've, this couple's been holding hands a lot during the podcast. It's just a beautiful love story. Um, I wrote down a few things. I loved, um, I loved that you had skills and are kind of have this spiritual gift, Tegan, that people just know they can talk to you. And that's a great spiritual gift. And maybe that's one of the reasons that Clark fell in love with you is partly just felt safe being with you and this deep connection that we have with our partners. It's multiple levels. I love that Clark has developed the skill to just open up. And so when Tegan came along, it was time to open up to your girlfriend, fiance, wife. You had developed those skills before Tegan came along. And you'd open up to elderly. Um, I think that was the first person you said you opened up to you opened up to your parents you've opened up to other people and i think that's a learned skill um just to learn how to be vulnerable and by hypothesis it's harder for guys than women to do that and maybe that's because our culture makes us like that or maybe that's because we're wired that way i don't know someone can do a dissertation on that um and come on the podcast and tell us what you found but i love that you've developed those skills and I think those are great skills to have going into a marriage. I think it, you know, so I'm makes me excited for your if your two future. Um, I love some of the vocabulary you use, Clark. I love this idea that you started recovery and that um you're still, I think that implies that you're in recovery and that you still are honest, you feel urges. Why do you use that vocabulary? So um for recovery especially um when i started meeting with my therapist um afterwards he um actually i think a couple months after the incident i was i had my current therapist moved out of country so i was given a new one and i kind of explained the, the bit and i said i haven't cut in like two three months and he said that's great. Don't say that. <laughs> and um, so he's like, use the term like you started recovery. And then my dad quickly agreed, like use suggesting like saying it's recovery or keeping track of like the date that since you started recovery allows room for slip ups, allows room for relapse. Because like if you just keep track of it's been a hundred days since I've cut and then you cut, then you're back at ground zero and you just feel hopeless again so i always i'm while um it's always for me it's just been it's been three three years since i've began recovery so that if it allow i mean it allows a room for humanity allows room for us to s slip up and and just keep going there's no reset button on when you started recovery that's a great segment. Um, I'd love you to talk, and you've done this already, Clark, but I'd love you to talk to those that are engaged in self-harm right now. 
I it's hard I it's hard to talk to such a broad audience if I'm being honest just because I know that so many people from so many walks of lives like are going through this and um and that so many people who do are going through self-harm have so many different motives for it or um things pushing their desire to harm but i mean there's i i think tegan's um notes on um coping mechanisms there's there's healthier ways to cope there's um while it does sometimes feel like an old friend who's never failed you before a way to just fall back on this it does hurt you it may not hurt you permanently like it may, you may be able to heal from it the scars may eventually fade but it does hurt you it and it does hurt those around you it's not just a it's not just self harm um, I mean, the, the uh, going back to the look on my little sister's face when she saw and the pain that my parents went through, um, it, and I mean the pain um, when I've I, and Tegan when I've told her a couple times like I'm having a really hard time and I'm considering it. Um, and she's told me every time without fail, you're not just hurting yourself. You're hurting me too. I don't like seeing you in pain and I don't want you to hurt yourself. It's, and I'm, I know that sometimes it can make things harder thinking, wow, I have so much responsibility for other people. Why, why would I think that way? <laughs> why can't it just be back to me just hurting myself? <laughs> because that's the reality <laughs> that. Um, we do have people who love us, even when we feel that we're failures, useless or alone, that there's always somebody in our corner, whether it's, um, whether it is our family, it is our chosen family, our friends, or if it's the savior, like there is always somebody who loves us. and there's always someone who knows the pain we're going in through. Tegan's got some thoughts too. Um, just with that, I know coming into Clark's family, they are a very supportive family. They have so many different, um, they have so many different paths. Um, and each one is unique and everyone is very supportive of one another. Um, I can't say the same for, I guess, my upbringing. We all loved each other, but it wasn't the same as I've experienced in this family. Um, just to open up a bit, I was quite suicidal in high school. Um, I didn't have that support system. And part of the reason I was suicidal was because of people at school and so I couldn't really turn to them either 
Um, I don't really know how I pulled through. It might have just been I kept looking for lights at the end of the tunnel. Not just one, but multiple things. But I would say if you are a spiritual person, the Lord really, really holds his shoulder right next to you. Um, yeah, and he will put people who you won't expect in your lives to just hold you up even for a little bit as to get you to the next place you need to go, whether that's through seminary teachers or the random freshman at your school <laughs> who you talk to occasionally. Um, Maybe your aunt. Um, you just gotta keep holding on and knowing that your life isn't meant to be miserable. It's not going to be. You can seek help. I got help on my mission, and that was a wonderful experience to understand that my thoughts were valid and. I guess from earlier, the perfectionism that we were talking about isn't um, normal, I guess, or it shouldn't be. Um, we don't have to be perfect. And thinking that it's wrong to um, have weaknesses isn't healthy. And to understand that is, honestly, I see people who who can just come up right next to you and say, oh, well, that's okay that you can't do that. Oh, that's okay that you didn't do those things correctly. I, That's the superpower for them. I <laughs> haven't fully developed that for myself yet, but I try and be that for others. Thank you. Tegan for being honest about your journey with feeling suicidal at times and not having people to turn to and um, you said some you said a couple things that um, no one's ever talked about lights at the end of the tunnel in all my days they've talked about a light at the end of the tunnel but I love the hope you just created where you can maybe see multiple lights they might be dim <laughs> They might come and go, but I love anything that can create hope at the end of the tunnel. The tunnel, to me, just represents the darkness you're in. Mm -hmm. And some people have told me, well, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, and that's a tough spot to be in. But if you can see different lights that maybe have different levels of brightness, that anything can give you hope. And I love, and sometimes you can't get to the end of the tunnel in one day. And so you'd said another phrase that's sort of like, you said, next place you need to go. And mm -hmm. there's hope in that, that just, you may not see how it's all going to play out. They may be overwhelming to figure, I've got all this time in the tunnel. I don't know how it's going to get, but it may be handleable. That's not a word, listeners. <laughs> but if you just use what you said, next place you need to go, that was really thoughtful. More thoughts, Tegan? Um, I guess just with the next place you need to go, I... Uh think service or recognizing that you can help other people is a good thing. I mentioned a freshman. Um, I think I found joy in 
guiding those younger than me, um, helping find my purpose to move on. Um, high school doesn't last forever. So I was like, someday I'll get out of here. <laughs> not that that's the greatest mindset to not find joy in your situation, but sometimes that's all you can do. And, you know, saying one day, um, I may find a spouse. One day I may have kids. One day I may have a great career. Um, life can constantly change depending on which way we um, make our path. And I think finding joy in those small moments in your current situation, that may be hard. And as well as looking towards those dreams that you may have. That's great. Talk about um, Clark. Just um, we've obviously, I think our listeners have inferred that you both are active Latter-day Saints, but you probably had some pain of the culture at times. And sometimes that pain can become a point where people step away from the church. But what is, where does your testimony lie? What keeps you in the church? Um, I've, I've always felt like I've had a spot at like at the Lord's table for like, I've always felt like I like no matter what the pain was or no matter, um, I mean, the truth of it is that we are all humans that are, I mean, it implies that our leaders, our neighbors are human as well. So we're going to be hurt. And I just always um, known that despite the pain that um, the Lord loves me and that there's always a place for me there. While I've never considered stepping away from the church, there were have been many times where there've been a few like months at a time in which I just, I don't go to church because of the pain or because of anxiety and um i'm blessed with the ability to feel that even when that does happen that the lord still loves me and when i come back or when i go to church that he loves me for coming i um i know of people who don't work that way who feel guilty when they're not able to to go to church due to their mental health. And I mean, to those people, I just say, he loves you. Whether or not you're having a crummy day and can't get to church that week, whether you're not, you're not having a crummy three months and can't get to church, he's, he loves you. And he will welcome you with a hug when you come back. I love that. And Listeners, I've been sharing this analogy a little bit on social media and the podcast, but I sort of look at this, uh, the swimming pool analogy is what I'm going to give you. And it's, I think the swimming pool represents the doctrine of our church. And, and one, you mentioned some of that, the Lord loves me. And I think um, the structure that makes the swimming pool possible is our, is our leaders that hold the priesthood and the priesthood keys. Then I think the swimming pool is finished in this porcelain that should be just perfectly smooth to our backs as we lean up 
against it. And sometimes we lean up below the waterline and we get jarred with something. And maybe no one else gets jarred there or sees other people getting jarred. And that to me is the culture that sometimes we experience. And others may not see it or experience it the same way. And so that's kind of helped. That's an analogy that I've used to sort of um, separate the culture that sometimes makes it then harder to feel the healing water of the, of the pool that represents our healing and hopeful doctrine that you mentioned. So maybe that's helpful for you listeners. Is there anything, any of you, <laughs> anything else either of you'd like to add as we're ending? Um, I just kind of going back a little ways, I, um, but when um, Tegan and I were talking about having like that person or people you can talk to, um, and I, I said that if even if there's no one on earth, there's always Christ. The best, I mean, something if you feel like you don't have anyone, find someone. There's go like people aren't going to always listen and always be supportive but more often than not i i personally believe that if you open up about pain and self-harm and anxiety depression even if someone is just barely considers you a friend they're going to help in whatever way they can even if you feel you are alone on earth, there's find someone and people will help. I love that. Um, I read this quote every now and then, but I just thought I'd read it today um, from the wounded healer, Henry Norn, who's a Catholic priest, writes, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or an all had she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there. So you two are wounded healers. And you can walk people out of the deserts you've been in or sister deserts that are very similar. Um, I love that you found purpose in helping freshmen, people that were younger than you needed your help. And I just, I think we all need to be the wounded healers. Elder Holland's been open about his journey with mental health. Um, but I think that's one of the greatest services we can do, but often it requires us to be authentic. And so that people know we can authentically lead them out of that desert because we've been there. You two are wounded healers. It's a good thing. It's a spiritual superpower. I like, like, like that word you used, Tegan. I think you used that phrase to help others. And I think you're in your 20s. You've got a long life ahead of you of helping others in a really wonderful, unique, authentic way. And those of you that are in a tough spot right now, they're in one of those deserts. I think Tegan and Clark's words give you hope. And and then the ability, and maybe this isn't binary that you need to get completely out of the desert to help others. Maybe part of getting out of the desert is helping others. Maybe that's what you did for those freshmen in your high school. It was helpful for you as part of serving other people. So I'll also put a link to um, the book I've been mentioning, Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture. Um, a lot of the things that Tegan and Clark talked about are in this book, so you can read that. It's an expanded, <coughs> uh, 
um, expanded um, book on a lot of these topics we talk about on the podcast. But Clark and Tegan Barrow, thank you for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. Mm-hmm.